Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I'm your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and on this week's episode, I thought we'd bring you a little something fun. We've had a couple of really dark episodes, and I thought I'd bring you a little celebration, specifically of the 20th anniversary of Scarletine.com, which is basically the official sex ed website of Unscrewed and practically every other sex educator you know. Scarletine.com is an amazing resource. It's specifically targeted toward young people, but honestly, people of all ages use it all the time. They have message boards. They have articles about everything you can imagine. They give amazing advice. And the person behind it, the amazing creator and friend of mine behind it, is Heather Corinna, and they have kindly agreed to be with us today to talk about it. So please welcome Heather. Thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. <sighs> 20 years, man. It's a long time. It is <laughs> a little unbelievable. It's amazing. But before we get into all that, I have to ask you lightning round questions. So what's been making you happy this week? Uh, I'm I'm really sorry to say this to my other people in Chicago, but I'm not in Chicago this week. I'm sorry, but it's also making me happy. Yeah, no, I think it should make you happy. Just for so everyone knows, we're recording this the week of the polar vortex. So it is cold and getting colder, I understand, in Chicago right now. Yeah, skipping it. Skipping it is definitely, it's definitely the thing. A plus plus. Yeah. Uh, what's some of the best sex advice you ever received? I feel like the best messaging that I ever kind of absorbed that I picked up around me overall was just to not be having sex if I'm not enjoying myself, right? Like to just that sex is about enjoying myself. And if that's not what I'm doing or what I think I'm going to do, why am I doing that? Do you know where you learned that? My parents were dating really for most of my childhood. You know, that was urban Chicago in the 70s. My dad was dating a bunch of people. My mom was dating a bunch of people. So, you know, it's before the 80s. Right. <laughs> before goddamn fucking Reagan. What's been making you the maddest or saddest about the sexual culture these days? I don't know. This feels a little petty, but I guess it's not in the end. I'm very sad. I'm glad for the people that are doing it for their liberation. I'm sad that this was part of anyone's process to see all of abstinence only very clearly coming home to roost in terms of people finally being able to come out 
the other side of it and have to do their own healing work and have to really look at what they have to do to undo things. Nobody should have to suffer like this period, but this has been an exceptionally long time. And who suffered is exactly who you knew they were making to suffer, right? Like who suffered were women and queer people, right? Like yep. and trans people. And this was on, this was not an accident. This was not like an unintended side effect. This was the intended effect and it worked. All right. What is a myth about sex that you used to believe but don't believe anymore? You know, going back to the sex advice, actually, I think that for a long time, and certainly before I worked in this field, I actually believed that most people were having sex just because they liked it and they wanted to be having it. Oh, you actually believed that the sexual culture was nicer than it is. Yes. <laughs> All right, we're going to we're gonna pick that up as soon as we're done with the lightning round. I was going to get a way of starting to talk about Scarlet Jean. But one more question. Who's somebody who's doing really brave work unscrewing the sexual culture that you want to give a shout out to? One of the things that I'm most excited about, especially as we're at like 20 years of Scarlet and many of those years in which we felt really alone as <laughs> a sex ed site, are the sites <laughs> that are starting to come up that are not only... They're earnest sex ed sites, right? They're not sexual health sites with like a little side of sex, like they're meant for sex ed, but they also are sex ed sites that are outside the United States and that don't center whiteness. My Yes. Two, Tell me about them. So my two favorites right now are one called Agents of Ishk, and that's based out of Mumbai. And they're kind of talking about sex, love, and desire is their jam. And then another that's even newer that I love, love, love is called Nuance. They're running it on Medium. They're based out of Canada, except all of their writers are first-generation immigrants. Um, cool. So, yeah, both of them are really, really cool. I think it's one of those things, too, that it's good to read as a person that needs sex education. And it's also really good to read if you're a person giving sex education, especially if you're a white person giving sex education. Yeah, I'm going to add them to my my regular reads. So Nuance is running on Medium. So you would go to Medium. And just type like Nuance sex education and you'd probably find it. Agents of Ishk is just agents like, you know, like secret agents of ishq.com. Perfect. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And if you send me links, I'll have those in the show notes for folks at JacquelineFreeman.com. They're both really cool. Awesome. So let's talk about Scarletine. I know Scarletine's origin story, but I think that not everybody does. So do you want to maybe start with how Scarletine came to be? Sure. I think there's a lot of different things that happen, but I also think there's a not that difficult equation, which is that my mother was a nurse and my dad was an activist and I brought the sex to the party and here we are. Add internet and stir. That Right? I mean, I'm like, and eh, there it is. You know, at the time that Scarletine started, I was doing a couple of things. I was still classroom teaching uh, Montessori three to six and I had also already, with a few other people, started Scarlet Letters. So this was pre-Google. This is pre-Yahoo, even, barely, but enough. I mean, there really wasn't even that much porn on the internet. Like, there was starting to be, but I mean, the balance of the amount of porn on the internet with everything else was a radically different balance. <laughs> And so we certainly were one of the only things I can even think of a couple off the top of my head that were about sex, that were by or for women, and that was something besides just 
visual pornography. And a couple of things happened around that. One, this is the first version of what would later become the Child Online Protection Act, which was the, was it the Child Decency Act? It was the CDA. I don't remember which the C stood for and which the D stood for. So people were outlinking if you had adult sites to say, if you're under 18, go here. The sites that were doing that were being shits about it. They were doing things like putting up a Disney link. When I'm like, do you know what? Like a teenager that wound up at a porn site, because again, there's no JavaScript. You're not accidentally getting you didn't to a- accidentally click something and wind up at a porn site. There wasn't even any Rick rolling back then. That's what I mean. I'm like finding a pornography site in the late 90s on the internet was like akin to climbing the Mount Everest of the internet. You had to do it on purpose. At the same time, I had started to get some letters from younger people asking sex questions because we had some adult sex advice on Scarlet Letters. It was, I think, probably some of the only sex advice that was online, period. People would find that. They would write me a letter. We think it's entirely possible that they are also looking for sexual entertainment. When a lot of people go to look at sexual entertainment, even if they're looking for sexual entertainment, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not also looking for information. Those things can happen concurrently. I think people like to think that they have to be segmented all of the time. And I think especially when you're talking about sex, they usually probably aren't. So we figured, you know what, if we make them a couple of pages, they'll probably come in, they'll probably leave after. (laughs) But I want to make sure that if what they want is information, they get some information. Now, when you kind of go back to talking about different ways in which I was naive about how things were for people, I kind of thought that a few pages would do it. (laughs) That's so sweet. How many pages do you have on Scarletine now? You can't count the message boards because then that's like hundreds of thousands of pages. I think of static content, I don't know, four, 5,000 pages probably. I mean, web pages, right? And I don't even want to think about what that means. You know, some of those web pages are... 15 page pieces right i mean it was different also because as you said there was a lot less information available on the internet and so people did have more basic questions you know you you get more complicated questions in part now because the straightforward stuff is easier to find right well i think we also get more complicated questions now i mean i think there's two reasons i think one that's kind of true but also two i i mean i think unfortunately I think that there's definitely a level of overthinking going on because there's so much information. I think it can make it harder to make some decisions intuitively. It can make it a little bit harder to feel like you can take a chance with something or to just kind of relax. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I thought there only needed to be five or 10 pages is that my experience of kind of sexuality and sexual information had largely been that... I looked up some stuff and I learned a few things, but for the most part, I experimented, you know, and I then got some kind of side nuggets of information when I needed it. It's funny when we have people that are talking about their birth control method choices now, and I agree. I mean, like, there's never enough choices. We still don't have enough choices. But for them to be like, oh, God, there's nothing, then I'm thinking, no, nothing is when it was a condom three brands of birth control pill diaphragm and a diaphragm yeah and maybe maybe a depo shot right like and if you're on the other end of that a scary iud so even then it's like well i have two questions about my one kind of birth control i mean i feel like right (laughs) 
say we didn't need more information, but I just kind of feel like the convention was that you learned by having sex. So you think that the questions are more complex now in part because there's more fear? Well, I think there's so many things right now where there's like more of this thing and then there's more of its corollary, right? Like there's more fear, but I also think that there's more people feeling they have the ability to research and they can take the time to research before they make a decision. So it's part fear and part choice paralysis. Yeah, maybe. You could research something endlessly. I mean, we have a lot, like I'll say that in direct conversations with users, a brand of conversation that comes up a lot has to do with somebody wanting to talk something all the way to their like 300% about it. Whereas sometimes we have to say this might be one of those things where you don't get to 300% or you get to 99% and then you're just either going to pull, you know, you're either going to. No, that makes so much sense to me, actually. Because I am of your same generation, and while I didn't have parents that were anything like your parents, I also have been long mystified by a certain granular obsessiveness <laughs> in some of the questions that you get. That makes a lot of sense, like that there's an idea that you can know enough to be 100% certain now, whereas we were raised just to sort of be like, well, we're going to do our best. <laughs> And I mean, there are some things where you can be, but I think that, yeah, I mean, one of the places that we get it the most is people who know that they don't want to get pregnant, but how on earth can they have sex knowing that even when they combine methods, it's absolutely positively not 100%. Like there's always some level of risk. And again, that's, I mean, I think those one of those questions where I almost wish that we could have more of them in person because in person I would say, well, I'm going to tell you what I think, but also too, I'm going to acknowledge that I'm from here and you're from right. there and there are some forces involved that are going to make how we feel about this radically different because to me, being able to be like 99% about some of this some stuff is amazing, right? Yeah, like, no, exactly. <laughs> right? That's incredible. But I'm from the time and place where I'm from. And so it makes sense that I'm going to think that. Do you think that's why millennials are having less sex? I think there's a lot of stuff going on there. I think that that might be part of it. I could rattle down the list. I think that being able to feel more supported in saying no, or not now. Right. Uh -huh. I think that increased anxiety is part of it fears about and less access to money and things that cost money is part of it. Leaving home later is part oh, of it. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm like, I mean, we could just go on. I do think that there's some choice paralysis that's in there. I don't know. I think that even just to kind of be so cold about this and have so many people go going after you to want to know these details about <laughs> It makes you sort of self-conscious, yeah. Self-conscious and also it's kind of clinical, right? Like, I mean, there's something kind of buzzkilly about the whole thing. Even when it comes to like, okay, now you can have all of this sexual information. Culturally, that's pretty new. And so culturally, so is the process of figuring out how to parse that information and take it in and how much weight to give it and also how to balance that information with feeling excited, right? Like it's not necessarily easy when you're doing a lot of research about how things can go and how things can happen for it to still seem exciting and not nerve wracking or not sexy, right? Or any number. 
number of different things. And so I think that that's a relatively new cultural process. Yeah. So we've kind of skipped around from the very beginning days of Scarlettine to the present tense. True enough. And I wonder if we can fill in some of the 20 years. So for however many, like one more page that I put in, a lot more letters came in. Probably in that first year or two of Scarletine is also when other stuff started to come up. Most of it is not here anymore. It's when Go Ask Alice was also up that same year. I heard Go Ask Alice. When Planned Parenthood had Teen Wire. Teen Wire came up that next year. Sex, etc. came up that next year or the year after. I think it was the next year. I think they were probably 99, 2000. Chick Click was then around late then. So there was some other stuff like Girl. And that's where the book deal with it came from. Girl I remember had, that. Yeah. Had some really great sex ed content on there. We worked with them a bunch of times. But what, how so- is Scarletine evolving? At that point, like if we're at like 2000, 2001, one, you know, the dot bomb drops <laughs> and that's with that, like we were on Chick Click for a little while and like we actually had funding for like six months. <laughs> and, but about the time that that was happening too, like I had to start winding down Scarlet Letters. I had the year or so before that realized like I was trying to still do this and teach in a classroom all day of, of little kids. And then I'm staying up all night trying to learn how to code. And thankfully to me, one of the nice things about Scarletine is I came to it already with a lot of the skills that I needed. I had done graphic design freelance, so I had some of those skills. My dad taught me how to program a little bit when I was younger, so I had some of those skills. But I had to pick and kind of take the risk on making Scarletine my full-time job. Within two years, I had way more people than I could deal like I was like shit (laughs) like I'm mostly by myself once we rolled out the boards we had like a couple of volunteers but I mean it was pretty solo journey with more occasional help but I was the only one financially responsible I was the only one kind of holding the whole thing up and certainly directing the whole thing and it was feeling a little more like something that happened to me. (laughs) Ah, yes. So even if that wasn't the case, it's kind of how it felt. Those first bunch of years, we tried to contact a lot of the other people, including big orgs doing this. And I would send this letter in which I thought, well, we're doing the same things in the same landscape and be like, we should all work together. And hey, let me, do you want some of our traffic? Because help and nothing, you know, like, It's not surprising. I think some of that to me was my like, welcome to nonprofit land where by and large people are so protective of their money. And when you say nothing, you mean nobody responded? Yeah, I literally got zero response. But it's like the thing. It's you're protective of your money and everything else instead of figuring out how to work it out. The other thing is I did not go without notice or trickle down to me that there were some high profile people who, you know, I was coming into this out of smut. Right. And there were plenty of people who needed to make a point of talking about that. Sex education in the late 90s, with the exception of people like Annie Sprinkle and Susie Bright, who were doing adult education, was not sex positive. Like you were still supposed to be a nurse or a doctor, which is crazy because still nurses and doctors didn't get shit for sex ed. So I mean, that's still true now, mostly. Yeah. And it was also true then. Like it's not 
stopped being true, but there was some pushing out and being unwilling to collaborate because you know, people could look up pictures of me online naked. I mean, it was like, because God forbid the sex education. Oh, right, 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 right. Those years of Scarlatine, especially when I think from like, I don't know, 2000 to 2005 or six were really rough because I was really scraping around trying to make it work. We are always almost closing. I I was like, I can't tell you how many winners that I was like, I'm cold. I just need a coat. Someone donate $60. I mean, like, really, like, I can actually remember a year that someone sent me a coat. Oh, my God. And uh, another sex worker sent me a code, I mean, just to make it super clear how all this economy works. But there was a lot of like trying to make it afloat and trying to make good content. And Scarletine was itself doing really well, like in terms of we had a ton of users. We had a really bustling community. People were getting what they needed. I mean, I know that actually it's really great content because it's the kind of content that even now it still holds up. (laughs) A lot of this stuff is really, it's solid. 20 years. So what are some of the things you're most proud of? Well, I mean, I feel like I can think of a lot of years of fighting about being inclusive. And certainly, unfortunately, those fights are still not over. But I feel like there are way more people on our team than there were before. I think that's also changing with consent. I mean, I was just remembering that even just a few years ago, Amanda Huss and I had some interview in which I talked about that consent should start with infants and we got like dragged. Oh, and then, yeah. And there was some MSNBC piece this winter being like, at the holidays, don't make your kids hug their grandma. Yes, which is- and it was like super popular. Wonderful. And that's what I want. Right. But I think we have a lot of things happening right now that feel like they've always been this way. And I'm like, no, not only have they not always been this way, relatively recently, they weren't that way. So really more conversations about consent and not just consent to fuck somebody. Right. <laughs> like, yes. you know, really more broad. bodily autonomy. Yeah. consent That's happening. More trans inclusion is happening. I mean, now it's still funny to hear, too, so many people talking about that pleasure should be in sex ed, like everybody's always said that, which I think that's the thing that made supporting Scarletine the absolute hardest. It wasn't the inclusion. It wasn't the plain talk. It was that from the very beginning, I was talking about people enjoying themselves and having a good time, and that was not okay. (laughs) Because God forbid you give somebody an idea that sex might be fun. 
Well, the worst thing is, is that God forbid, and this is really, if you really take it in, you feel how noxious it is. I mean, I'm not saying this as myself, but as I'm speaking as culture overlord, God forbid that anybody should have a good time with sex, but extra God forbid that it should be young people because young people are the people that if they're having sex, it should be the worst for them. Like it's iffy that adults can be having a good time, but absolutely not that I'm thinking so. Well, and young women, especially. Exactly. And think about what that means. Like sit with that for a minute and take it in because it's horrifying. I mean, it's exactly what you think it is, right? It's we must keep young people from having sex, but if they're going to have sex, it best be traumatic. I also think related to that, the hookup culture, hand-wringing and moral panic discourse has abated a little in the last few years. Yes, and you, I mean, you and I could both think of a couple of years that we were basically trying to jump in front of the other one as a human shield. (laughs) Yes. Some of our enemies, for the record, have lost. They're gone. They're gone. They don't even have the balls to stick around. Yeah. But yes, absolutely. That being able to change has been a really big deal. I mean, another thing, especially as somebody who, like, even before Scarletine, just as a Montessori educator, really focusing on young people having a say in their education and their information. I'm not totally on board always with how people are doing it. But I feel like so many, especially with sex education, but education period projects online, when you look them up, they're going to tell you about how they're trying to do what young people are asking them to do, which back in the beginning, it was like I was insane for suggesting this true. And how could young people possibly know? I mean, just every offensive thing that you <laughs> you can possibly think of and ridiculous thing, right? Like that young people can't know what they want. Right. But also that like with this stuff, young people shouldn't be determining what the content is. The CDC should be determining what the content is. Or their parents should be (laughs) determining what the content is. We know who it should be. It, It should be them. It's for them. They know what they need and they know what they want. Certainly not in general education, but in sex ed, I feel like I barely have to have that fight at all anymore. And that's amazing. That is amazing. And I feel like Scarlett has a lot to do with that. I think that it does. I hope that it does. How are things now? Like, what is, what's the present day, present tense state of Scarletine? What are you guys doing every day? Tell us about how things are now and, and how you're looking to the future. Basically, at any given day of Scarletine, most of what's happening is still online. I'm kind of in between living places, so I don't have an ongoing outreach program right now. I usually do. By the way, people in Chicago, if you want an ongoing outreach program, you should talk to me, especially if you're on the north side. You should really talk to me. Our assistant director, Sam, is doing outreach uh, with a youth shelter called Eddie House in Nevada. And occasionally, one or two of our volunteers will do outreach elsewhere, but mostly it's still online. And then our day and our time is divided mostly between creating content and then doing all the things that we have to do to do that and then managing our direct services. That's the message boards, which have been around since 2000, the text service, which when did we put that in? feels like we've had it for like 10 years. Is that like texting for advice? Yeah. Yeah. You just, yeah. You just text in and we're there on the other end. And, and that's we, staffed yeah. largely by volunteers? 
Um, it's a mix, but I mean, you know, Scarlettina at this point, I'm our only full-time person. Sam usually works about 20 hours a week and we do a lot of that, but then we've got some volunteers that are effectively almost like staff. They're there every few days. They've been around for years. So it's a mix. It's a combination. And then we have a live chat that we do a few days a week for a couple hours. So, I mean, it's funny, too, because traffic-wise, direct services are 0.0001% of our traffic that we have in a day. But they inform a lot of what we do, right? Because between that and then email and then what we listen to people kind of say on social media, this is how we decide a lot of what we do is we decide what content we need by what happens in conversations and direct interactions, and we decide by if people write in and say, hey, I need this thing. It's one of my favorite things to have happen is that, you know, on Twitter or Facebook, somebody will make some snarky thing like, why isn't there an article about this on Scarletine? And we'll be like, you're totally right. There should be one. We're going to go make one right now. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why people always come in so hot. I'm like, this is always how we've done it. We're like, oh, do you think we should have that? Yeah, we should have that. We're going to go make it. Then we're going to have it. There it is. Done. Moving on. Next. A lot of Scarletine changes have actually happened through snark that it's like, I don't know why, why are you being snarky? Why don't you just ask? <laughs> One of the things to me about being grassroots is that, of course, if you're courting big funding, this is very difficult. But for us, like to be grassroots and to really stay grassroots, you can't really do that much long term planning because you have to just right. be boxive and responsive in order for us to do things how we're going to do things, it's really on the fly, including because you can't know what's going to change culturally very suddenly, which can radically change what everybody wants or needs. Right. If we make a five-year plan to have this whole thing that's about reducing chlamydia rates, because that's where the funding is or whatever, that's, that's great and all. But it might be that while we're doing that, we at work some really big other thing that needs addressing that is a much bigger part of people's lives and realities happens. And so I think, you know, for us, a lot of it is figuring out how to survive and how to still do what you do and be organized, right? Because of course, it's more than just me now. And it's a lot of people so that you can have some things that are regulated, but you still can be really responsive. So how has Scarletine changed you? I think there's an interesting spot to be in when you are both a feminist and you are a service-oriented person. And I'm non-binary, but I'm a non-binary woman and someone also assigned female sex. And so it's thorny, right? Like, because yeah. I'm not interested in doing that out of obligation. I'm not doing interested in doing that because it's apparently my gender assignment. But on the other hand, if I look back at myself and my life and even my younger self, it is reflexive in me and it is natural, for lack of a better word, for me to help people that need help and to want to give people the things that they need in order to be happy and healthy in life. I pretty much have a lifelong thing now of helping other people raise their children. You know, in some ways it's like, you can kind of look at me and what I do in one lens and I look really radical. But in another way, when you look at it, I'm just kind of a super weird nanny. Um, <laughs> a very specific Mary Poppins. Yeah, but it's tricky. And there's something about the way that that's worked with Scarletine. 
when you look at who we help, like some of it is understanding that we're not just doing sex ed. A lot of my time at Scarlet Dean has been spending very dedicated, very intensive, sometimes every single day for hours, one-on-one time with people who have survived abuse or assault, right? Or people trying to get out of uh, an abusive household that's abusive to them because they're queer or they're trans. The the kind of service with Scarletine has felt so immediate, even when you have young people who are entitled. The needs that they have around this stuff are like, we all need this stuff. We all need help with this. Like we all absolutely do. And young people are abandoned in it more than anybody else. And so it's one of those things that I feel like makes it very effortless to just pick it up and be like, of course, I'm going to do it. And I mean, and that's kind of how Scarletine has been in the front. Of course, I'm going to answer these letters that someone has written me because they picked me and because I can. And I know that I can do it well. And of course, it's, you know, the work that we do here is radically feminist. And so there's that in the mix as well. Yeah, I think too, like, there's a selflessness. And it's tricky to talk about because we're not supposed to be selfless right now. Right. And sometimes even the ways that we are and are offered to be selfless are ways that like, of course, we shouldn't be selfless that way, because that's oppression and abuse. That's not empowering or healthy. But for me, that's always been the kind of life that I wanted to to live. It certainly isn't financially helpful, but it's given me an emotional freedom about doing all of that. Scarletine has let me be able to kind of make a living geeking out on the stuff that I like to geek out on. Not a great living, but, you know, there's been a roof over my head and there's food in my refrigerator. Like, I'm okay. Well, and I should say, like... Not only is Scarletine the site that literally every sex educator recommends every time they speak in public, and so therefore you're sort of providing backup for all of us, but also what people don't see, and I can't imagine I'm the only person who does this, but I feel like you're the sex researcher to so many sex educators. I know that if there's something I'm trying to figure out and I'm like, oh, I saw a study about this once, or I wish there was a study that said X, Y, Z, is there data about this? And you will always... If you don't know off the top of your head, you know where to find it. Like all this labor that nobody sees supporting people and making the rest of us look smarter. <laughs> I appreciate that. You said that, actually. I do actually kind of feel like that doesn't get seen very often. And I've never heard someone articulate it I'm like not that. the only person who does that. I can't imagine. Well, no, you're not by a long shot. And, so, you know, some of it is much less gracious. Our Twitter feed is definitely our busiest bit of social media. But I think what our Twitter feed largely is, is kind of a sex education news service for other educators more than it's something that young people are using. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I like that. You know what? I like that service, too. Like, uh, you know what? I have always had it in my head. One, because I don't want to try and single-handedly give sex education to billions of people because that's too many. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't work like that. But also because I would like to maybe sleep sometimes um, or or have sex myself on occasion. What? I know. It's crazy. I like doing what we can do to make it so everybody else is more informed. My sense with Scarletine has always been that if this is the sex ed that works for you and this is the right place for you to get what you need, that's great. If it's not, I don't want you to stay here. And I'm happy to help you. Like, let's find what is. (laughs) I mean, but I just want to appreciate how extraordinarily rare that is. 
Well, and it's unfortunate. And it's, I mean, to be like really, to put a really fine point on it, I actually think that it's some of why everybody could have a better sex education right now. Again, to me, that's a broken nonprofit machine. And I really think even if people aren't aware that they're doing this, I think this is what's happening, which is that in order to keep our funding and our money and our services, everybody still has to be here, whether or not they're being served that well here. And that's one of the changes that's happened, especially in Western nonprofits, that's really bad. So let's bring this home by talking about funding and making a little pitch for Scarletine to keep you going for the next 20 years. How are you currently funded? We still, as we always have been, are funded mostly by individual donors. The last year and a half, we've actually finally gotten a couple of foundational grants, which is, yeah, it took long enough. (laughs) I mean, I say that, but also I recognize that there are probably compromises we could have made at some point in order to get some funding like that. Some of them, I don't think we should have made. Like some of them, I'm like, nope, doesn't matter that it would have gotten us money. Others, in hindsight, hmm. Well. Um... (laughs) You live, you learn. We'll figure it out. But that's where we're at right now. And the tricky thing about any kind of institutional funding is that you have to meet their needs and you have to meet their comfort level is really the other thing. And so one of the reasons that it has taken so long for us to be able to get anything but individual funding is that it would mean a change in certain things. It would mean removing some of our content for some things. Have funders would... literally said that to you? Like, we'll give you money if you take this down? Oh, well, it's not that overt. It's more of like, we'll put in for what it is, and then I'll back and hear something later. Or I'll say, like, we've sent them letters. Why don't we get anything? And then, you know, somebody down the thing is like, mm, well, I work there, and this is the thing. So just FYI. Funders, wow. we see you. Like... <laughs> Or just shifting certain things. The things that people kind of usually want you to change the most are the stuff that you need for the most vulnerable people. Right. Always, always, always. Our trans content makes you uncomfortable. I don't fucking care. (laughs) Right. uh, Okay, then. So, you know, to some degree, we probably will always not be able to get much of that kind of funding, in part because, again, this is not 1998. Right. So there are other sources of sex ed and some of them are fine, but some of them I think are really good. Some of them I absolutely I'm happy to refer to Scarletine because I think they're as good as we are. But I also think that a lot of things have watered down a lot of things and don't include a lot of things, but have the stability of funding. Right. Right. But the thing is, too, is that they also do that version of that well enough that it would be superfluous for me to change Scarletine to make it like those things, right? Because I'd be like, but those things already exist and they've done well in their way and I wouldn't do it any different, right? right? If I was to do it that way, so why bother? I don't really see Scarletine changing that much in terms of what we want to have in it and what we're not willing to compromise on or get less visible about or even agree from the front. Like, you know, with everything that happens, I've never had to say, well, if we do that, Will we lose our funding? I mean, ostensibly that could change our independent donors, but it's not like we're depending on this grant and we have to think about it. I don't have to think about that stuff when we make our choices, which is good because, you know, I mean, again, (laughs) I'm I'm the child of a leftist activist. I do think that money 
corrupts. And I do think that having to make decisions like that with that in there compromises your abilities. If members of Unscrewed Nation, if my all of my listeners right now felt moved to give you a little scratch so you don't have to compromise, where should they go? So anywhere on Scarletine, there's a donate button. You can push it. There's also, we don't get a giant amount of money, but we have a threadless store. There's some good Scarletine swag. Everybody always likes the queer sex ed for all buttons. That Yes. They're not buttons. They're enamel pins, man. They are, but then there's also, you can have t-shirts. You can have a mug. So yeah, there's a bunch of different ways. But also too, another thing that we're trying to talk to people about this year, especially in our birthday year, is that you can have a house party, like to throw a small fundraiser, not with hundreds of people, not even with 20 people, but maybe with like five people is a fun thing to do. It's an easy thing to do. You have a dinner party, you have cocktails. I'm happy to come on Skype, whatever we can do to recognize that if we can expand our networks of something grassroots and small, we're funding by telling other people why we think it's so awesome. That can make a pretty big difference. And it's also fun. Amazing. I'm going to have to think about doing that myself. Heather, I am so grateful and proud and all of the feels of everything you've accomplished and everything you do for all of us constantly. And I'm so glad you came on Unscrewed to talk to us about it. Aside from scarleteen.com, which is where all the magic happens, shout out where else people can follow and connect both with Scarleteen and with you. We've got a contact link at the bottom of every page. If you want to email me, that's the way to do it. I'm at Heather Corinna, all one word, uh, one R, two N's, on Twitter. Scarletine is on Twitter with that Scarletine. We're on Tumblr. We're Scarletine Org on Insta. Uh, and we're Scarletine on Facebook. Awesome. And I am Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F on Twitter and I am Jacqueline Effable on Instagram. You can find Unscrewed wherever you like to get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Acast or Stitcher or any other app. We should be there. If we're not, let us know and we'll try to get ourselves there. While you're in there, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. And also give us five stars. Give us a couple sentence review. That is how you help other people find the show. And if you've already done that, just spread the word. Tell people to listen. We love that too. Unscrewed is produced by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by the amazing Natalia Rodriguez. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in collaboration with The Establishment who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you all safe and happy sex lives. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.